Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend, so you can stay informed the easy way. Serena, what are we talking about this week? On the 26th of July of this year, there was a coup that happened in the West African state of Niger. In the early morning, the presidential guard imprisoned President Bazoum and his wife. More specifically, what happened is they locked him into his room, and he and his wife fled into a panic room in which they are still believed to be today. It's become really critical because they're running out of supplies, so everyone's very unclear about what's going to happen to him, if he's going to come out of the panic room, if he's going to come out of the house. No one knows what's happening. But basically, the top military official have taken over the country. Now, This is incredibly significant because President Bazoum was a civilian and democratically elected leader, which is very uncommon in the state of Niger. Niger gained independence from France in 1960, although more on that soon, and since then basically has seen one coup after another, military dictatorships. They've had a rough time, and so... This president was, I don't want to say a real change of pace because he was very highly supported by the West. I was listening to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, and one of the things that they said that really gave me the icks was this president was highly supported by the United States and Europe because he supported Western values in quotation marks and was seen as an ally to the West. And as we will go into in great detail... There's a lot going on, and a lot of people have interest in it for various different reasons, and it's been just chaos since. I think it took a while for anyone to come forward and sort of claim themselves, proclaim themselves the leader, but now they do, and it's a military leadership. And the rest of the African, West African states, ECOWAS. ECOWAS is the economic community of West African states, which consists of 15 nations, has imposed sanctions. But interestingly, it's the first time that they threatened military intervention, which hasn't happened before. So there's a real possibility of maybe an African military war and states who are part of ECOWAS, so that is Burkina Faso, we have done an episode on Burkina Faso, and Mali have said that if there is a military intervention, then they would take this as a kind of attack on their own governments, which happen to be also military governments as well. So yeah, an interesting situation in Niger. And I think you pointed out that, I was thinking about this the other day, like all of the media, the Western media, are really talking about how Niger and the fall of stability and security in Niger is going to be a terrible thing for the West. And of course, Niger was seen as a kind of democratic place. In the Sahel region, this region in general, there is a really, really massive threat of the Islamic State in many different forms. So be that Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda or whatever, like all of these jihadist groups who are terrifying and a terror on the population, there's a big threat of those. And in fact, since the coup, there has been an increase in their activity in the country. 
Yeah, which is interesting, actually, because the military took over because they were sort of saying that this wasn't being handled, right? So yeah, on the one hand, it's militarily important. But I think really what the most important thing is that's going on, especially, for example, for France, is that most of France's energy depends on Niger, because Niger is one of the world's largest exporters of uranium, and uranium is needed to run nuclear power stations, which France kind of relies on. And one of the biggest, you know, French companies that does this is Reva, a huge, huge, massive company in Niger. And there's a huge economic interest and energy interest and also military interest, you know, as you know, like the US has bases and the French, you know, military presence is there too. And all this to say that you know, you're totally right. This is why there's been all of this media coverage, or there has been some media coverage of this. Whereas the other day, I thought I'd sit down and I'd read The New Yorker and relax. And I started reading about Haiti. Oh, no. Oh, my God. The country is such, such, such a big mess. And there is no security and there's no government. There's no governance, uh, which is the problem in a lot of these countries like Mali and Burkina Faso and, and also Niger, like the government's structures and systems are not really solid and they don't have a good foundation because there's a lot of corruption and the west props up a lot of them and so these structures of governance and systems in these countries are not very good but haiti is the same and it's just run by bandits and the people are terrorized basically i think 80 percent today was in the news 80 percent of uh is it port-au-prince the capital is run by gangs that's it and the whole country is just people are just moving out in droves they've got nowhere to go it's awful in this article it said when clinton wanted to maybe intervene with haiti biden advised against it saying this is going to sound really bad whenever anyone starts a sentence that starts like oh this is going to sound bad it's going to be bad yeah this is going to sound really bad but in terms of u.s interests it wouldn't matter if haiti just sank into the sea and that's why nobody's bothered about Haiti because it's not of a strategic interest to anyone. Whereas Niger is quite complex and has a lot of strategic importance. So I, I had your comment in mind when I was reading, you know, the articles in the New York Times and things like that. And poor Haiti hasn't been covered at all because it does not have uranium. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I yeah, no, I was listening to these podcasts and I was like what about the people? Like, there's no mention of the people. You listen to The Economist, The New York Times, all these Western news sources, and all they talk about is their interest and Western interest. And you're like, this isn't a game of chess. There are people's lives at stake here. And how selfish of you to just constantly be talking about yourself, yourself, yourself. And that's why I just wanted to say for this, to frame it first from the people, like there's a lot of poverty and malnutrition. And plus when these groups, these Islamic groups take over these countries like Mali and Niger and take over towns, traditionally in these countries, they are Muslim countries, 
but they are integrated with their local cultures. So they are, it's traditional Islam. It's not a radical Islam based on Sharia law. So to say all the schools are being shut down, women and girls are being flogged, you know, in public and beaten and told to wear a hijab and people are being amputated in public for like stealing and things like that. And people are also being murdered by these groups. So the humanitarian crisis is really, really awful. And that's not to be, I mean, I think that should be the headline really, that for the people, it's fucking terrible. So I was listening to this really, really good podcast called Wohlstand für alle, episode 2010, Der Machtkampf um Niger und der Neo. In this podcast, they one of the things they talk about is how actually this poverty index is wrong. This poverty index is if people live, I think, on it's like $2. The real amount of people who live below the poverty line is actually much higher than these statistics calculate for. So there's so much statistical error in them that they're incorrect. And they have an entire episode. I think they say it's episode 120 where they go into this in extreme detail about how all of these estimations are wrong. And it's also really interesting that all of these figures are done by NGOs and Western organizations like the UN, like the World Bank and things like that. And I was watching a really good documentary, it's a Deutsche Welle documentary about Mali, which is a neighbor to Niger and which also is run by, you know, the military, half of it, and the other half is kind of like northern Mali is basically under Islamist, more or less this Islamist right now. A guy from Mali was saying, if you look around Mali, you know, we get a democratically elected president and the West are like, Mali is so democratic, right? But if you look around at all the structures and things, there is not one single company, not one single system that the World Bank, that the IMF, that anyone, you know, has invested in that lasts. Nothing has lasted in the last 40 years. So they haven't really been investing anything uh, of any significance. They're just like giving out money. And then and then that money is being taken by corrupt government officials. And they say this government is great, but the IMF and the World Bank, they're all there. They all have offices there. And they can see even in their audit reports, they acknowledge fully the corruption, but they don't do anything about it. And then this French guy, a white French guy, was saying, yeah, because if you think about all these systems, all these organizations, like these big NGOs sitting in Switzerland, the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, they're providing jobs to all of these people, right? And they're getting a lot of money and it's all going because all the West are part of this, you know, are getting paid. So they're not going to look at what they're doing and be like, look, guys, this is not working. All of the money and the aid that we're giving is just being given to corruption. There's nothing we can do about it. We don't know how to handle it. They're not going to turn around and say that. So they just continue this kind of fiction. And then, you know, the fiction of the government continues that it's a democratic government, which it, yeah, I guess maybe it is, but actually a lot of those votes are bought and stuff like that too. There's so much corruption. So actually it's not. So it's also interesting what you're saying about the index thing. And I, I think it really feeds into like, what do we think of as democracy? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. what, what from the West is a good democratically, you know, do we actually even give a shit as long as it looks good for us? Because like, I just keep on thinking about Haiti. It's such a mess, Haiti. Like I just can't get over it. And then in that case, we have no values and we don't care about it because we're not propping up 
our own image in Haiti, if you know what I mean, and we don't have a real strategic interest there. That's what was always really very significantly stuck out to me in all of these reporting. I mean, not to repeat myself over and over again, but everyone always said democratically elected president who supports Western values, an ally to the West. And you're like, there we go. That's the important part of the sentence. But like this Western values, because, you know, the West has been um, fighting this war in Afghanistan and, you know, there's like the war on terrorism has been happening until recently and now they've just given up on it and they're like, oh, whoops, China is a problem. That's basically the, the whole turn that's happened in the whole of focus of the West recently. I think Western values, as opposed to like... 12th century Islamist, you know, Saudi Wahhabi values is it's good that there is an interest in preserving that over the other thing. And so I think the problem that the West has had, there's a really good uh, interview on democracy now about this. The problem in Niger and Mali and all these places is the people want security, right? They want to be secure. They don't want these groups to come in. These groups are not them. Islamist groups are a colonizing force. They are nothing to do with the culture and the tribes and everything, everyone that lives there, right? These people who live there do not want them either. And if they do want them, they want them because they have no faith and nowhere else to turn to because the government is corrupt. And then they get lured in by this moralistic talk of the Islamists and they go for it. But like, it's not in anyone's interest, right? So security is a real issue because without security, you actually can't have any government that functions. And this is the problem in Haiti. I have no idea why Haiti has become part of this conversation, but it kind of just has. It's on my mind. So in Haiti, for example, there's also this thing of like, we have to, they have to first establish security before a government or any, you know, can do anything. Mm. And so what's happened with the West is they've they've done a kind of good job, I guess, in training these militaries and stuff, you know, to to establish a sense of security. And these regions have been secure before. But then what was really interesting, the Intercept reported, was that what happens is the West, or like, for example, the US, right? The US invests a lot in the military in such countries. Mm-hmm but without investing in all the other institutions and systems you need for a functioning democracy. It's not just about security. The research has shown that countries with an oversized military are more susceptible to military coups. And a lot of the people, I think maybe even including this one right now, he was trained by the US. A lot of these Nigerians or Mali army people have been trained by the US, which of course those countries need a good army, but then it makes the army sort of oversized, whereas the government is all corrupt and it's a weak institution. So of course, you're just going to get coup after coup after coup. What do you expect? Yeah. And it is also very important to note one thing. There's some really, really, really good Vox documentaries about how modern day Islamistic terrorist groups were actually not only funded, but a direct consequence of the actions of the West. And you know what it also really reminds me of? You know what has been happening in Sudan with the rapid forces? Wait, who are the rapid forces? They are the rebel forces that are currently fighting with the Sudanese government in Sudan. They're cooing on... Mm-hmm. Like a pigeon. Like a pigeon. On the Sudanese forces. So it's like they were used by the Sudanese government in an, in an attempt to fight anti-government 
insurgency, and they were trained by the Egyptian military, and now they are cooing, like they're staging a coup against the very government that they were created to protect. Just thinking about this idea of like how the United States of America will they'll arm certain groups like they did with what's yeah. his name? The guy in the the guy they made said did nine eleven who who sat in the cave. Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden. I could not remember his name. Just like the United States armed <laughs> who sat in the cave. Yeah with Kim Kardashian tapes. They found him with Kim Kardashian sex tape in his cave. That's propaganda. Somebody's making it up. Someone's making it up. But what I'm saying is, it's just like Osama bin Laden where... That is not true. <laughs> That's what... I will not have Osama bin Laden's name besmirched on this podcast. He reads Noam Chomsky. Yeah, it, it, I mean, that's what the news would say. I don't know if it's just a lie that they make. Can you it. check it? Yeah, it, I... I just don't believe you, I'm sorry. Here, there's an article called Osama bin Laden keeping up with the Kardashians. On, in the Daily Mail. Yeah, I'll from just... Reuters. A stash of pornography was found in the height of Osama bin Laden, including Kim Kardashian's sex tape. Anyway, what I'm saying is, it's kind of similar to how the United States of America used Osama bin Laden. You know, they armed him, they trained him. So the same type of thing happened in the Sahel region. So by the way, if you don't know what the Sahel region is, it's a region in Africa. It is defined as the eco-climatic and biogeographic realm of transition between the Sahara to the north and the Sudanian savanna to the south. So basically, I would say a stripe across the like waste of Africa. The countries which are in the Sahel region are Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Chad, Gambia, Guinea, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Nigeria, and Senegal. Yeah, so what happened was, I mean, first of all, there was a civil war in Algeria in the 1960s, and a lot of those Islamist fighters, to put that into context uh, with Niger, Niger actually borders seven countries, Burkina Faso, Mali, Nigeria, Benin, Algeria, Libya, and Chad. So in Algeria in the 1960s, there was a civil war with Islamic fundamentalists, and which was terrible for the people that lived there. But then that organization, I'm getting lost between all of the different Islamic organizations. There are so many, and they've all got like so many different letters. There are a lot of letters going on, and I can't keep track. But anyway, those fighters just went over the border, you know, into Mali, and then what happened was the West supported, you know, the fall of Gaddafi and, and Libya. Mm -hmm. And Libya was really actually very important for the stability of the entire region, which we, you know, in the West didn't actually think about how important it was. So Libya was completely destabilized. Also, it has to be said that Gaddafi had a deal with the West, right? He closed his borders and kept all of these economic refugees out he kept them at bay yeah exactly but he did he did ensure to some extent the prosperity of this particular you know the neighboring countries mm -hmm. and so then what happened was the Tarek fighters they are the nomads who traditionally live in the Sahel region so for example in the north of Niger and Mali they came back from Libya 
And at the same time, the fighters from Algeria, the Islamists came, you know, to the same area and to northern Mali. And they kind of united and joined forces to go against the government of Mali, because the government of Mali, a bit like also the government of Niger, is really neglectful of these tribes. They're just taking their land, giving their land away to like Areva and polluting the entire place with the uranium. And so they had really good reason to try and take back control of their land. And they joined up with the Islamists. But then what happened was after they gained control of this area collectively, they then had a fight with each other because the Taurex, they practice traditional Islam, but they are not extremists. And so then they also got driven out of this area and now the Islamists are in charge. But that's also a way that like the West and Western politics has kind of interfered with the stability of this region. So it's actually really, really complicated. So Olaf Lassing, who is from the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, who just seems to be a really gross human, he released a statement basically saying about when the putsch happened. That's how you say in German, you say coup, it's a putsch. I don't know, do you say that in English? A putsch? Yeah. Ah, interesting. Because of the Munich one. Became famous. Ah, right. Well, originally German word. So when this coup happened, he said that the... I'm translating from German, so it's not 100% correct. But he said that this coup will cause the poverty in Niger to get worse, and that together we have to fight the jihadist and the human smugglers, otherwise there will be a stronger migration to Europe. What kind of a comment is this? Your first concern is that you will get more economic refugees. What a, what a terrible, ridiculous human. And yet, weirdly, not surprising. Just like, can't see beyond their own plate, as we say in German. Können nicht über ihren eigenen Tellerrand gucken. Anyway, given all of this, and I know it's quite late in the episode, but I do think it's really, 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 really important to just contextualize Niger a bit in terms of a quick overview of Niger. Niger is the largest country in West Africa. It is 1.3 million square kilometers. We watched a very, very funny video by this guy from Geography Now, and he hilariously says in the video that Niger kind of looks like a chicken drumstick. I like that he said it's like a frying pan, actually, because it's one of the hottest countries in the world. It is, yes. 80% of the country is made up of desert. It is the Sahara and the Tener. Only 1% of the country is covered in forest and 3% is used for farming. But, and this is the really interesting part, 87% of the population engage in some form of agricultural work. They grow ground nuts cotton, and they trade in livestock with Nigeria. But I really want to focus when we think about this poverty thing, right? When we think about the poverty line in Niger, 87% of the people in that country engage in some form in agricultural work, but only 3% of their country can be used for farmland. Farming makes up for one third of their industry. In Germany, it is less than 1%, just to give you some context. So this is an incredibly poor country. It is one of the poorest countries in the world. Yes, and what's devastating, and this is actually the case in a lot of 
African countries because Africa is actually very rich in resources. Yes, it is. So Niger has massive amounts of uranium. It's the world's fifth largest exporter of uranium. And guess how much of that goes to the people? Basically none of it. It's either the government is maybe taking some corruption money or else nothing. I was watching this amazing documentary called Niger, the Battle for Uranium. It was by a French agency. It's called Investigations et Enquêtes. I don't know, something like that. French, not my thing. But it was talking about how basically the Turks, you know, this particular nomadic tribe, which traditionally lived in this land where this all this uranium is being mined, have been fighting against the the mines and i mean they've asked actually for 50 percent that's what the demand is which obviously they're just not going to get but the problem is that areva this big french company has been there for 47 years and they haven't contributed they haven't given the people anything basically so areva has made profit for over 40 years it has, in that time, mined about 100,000 tonnes of uranium, and Niger has benefited from about 3,000 tonnes, if you put it into context. So that right there is neocolonialism, or economic colonialism. And actually, it's not even that they got nothing. The company, what it does is it stores these big mountains of radioactive dust, which then blow across the whole of the desert and into other cities and stuff. And there's so much cancer, bone cancer, pulmonary diseases. And then because the people are so poor, they reuse, for example, you know, like scrap metal from the site of uranium to make pans with or bowls with or things like that. And those are all radioactive too. And then Areva, amazing, they set up two hospitals in the area, which are supposed to be the best hospitals in Niger, but they're not very good. And in that time of 40 years, they've only diagnosed, I think, two professional diseases, like so two minors or, you know, people who worked in, the, you know, who are affected by radioactivity. And they do tests all around everywhere. And all their tests in official paperwork come back as, oh, there's no ra radioactivity. Whereas other organizations are doing all these tests and they're like, you're blatantly lying. And the reason Areva doesn't want to admit that they are messing up the groundwater and also uranium uses so much water that it's like non-renewable, it's non-recyclable, the way that they use it to produce uranium. The reason that they won't admit to basically the massive detriment that they're causing to the local fauna and the water and the people is because then, as a French company, they would have to compensate. And this is going to be totally expensive for them. So not only are they taking these people's land in deals with the government who are, the government is sitting south, and the north is this desert region, which those people don't, are not in control of what's, you know, the government, what the government is, you know, giving out. And those are nomadic people that have like a real respect for animals and they have a certain way of life and if they can no longer do that way of life where they are they will either need to migrate but they have no money or they have to go to the cities and then in the cities you know they have to pay for firewood they have to pay for electricity they have to pay for water they're not used to all of that then they have to get a job so it's just this case of capitalism expanding into land and peoples and 
cultures and taking them over in a way that they then have to sell their bodies, you know, like it makes more poverty in the end. Yeah. It's awful. Absolutely. And it should be noted that when Niger gained independence from France in the 1960s, they were given independence under the condition that France gets to have most of their uranium. So, like, they got independence in quotation marks, but, like, not really, because France continued to exploit them enormously. And also, if you read, right, just the history of Niger, just the political history of Niger after independence. I have a summary. In short, it's like first military regime, uranium boom, second republic in 1989, third republic, first Tareg rebellion, second military regime, fourth republic, third military regime, fifth republic, second Tareg rebellion, sixth republic in 2010, seventh republic, and I guess now it's a military regime. Yeah. And if you do a bit of a deep dive into each of these different military regimes and everything, you will see that the French government is pulling the strings whenever something doesn't suit them. They interfere. And poor Niger is a country just they fucking haven't had a break. They've just suffered under this form of neocolonialism. They got their freedom in theory, right? On paper? Yeah, yeah, free country. But not really. They've still been so exploited and used and controlled by France, it's really disgusting. But they get a lot of aid from France, this is the thing. Yeah. You know, they do. They actually do, because we give them money, as the European Union also, we give them money, but then we have the problem of corruption, yes. which nobody wants to address. So how do we continue like this? I don't know. I mean, how do people in charge not see this is a basic, this is the basic pattern of problems? Yeah. Also, because everyone thinks that the name Niger is French, it is not. The first mention of the word Niger is by a Amazigi scholar, Leo Africanus, in the 1550s, and he wrote about a country called Niger. So the name has, like, predates French colonialism by many, many years. How is it related to Nigeria? I don't know about that, but I can tell you this. So basically, the Alexandrian geographer Ptolemy wrote a description of the Wadijir, which neighbors mod what is modern-day Algeria, and the Niger, the lower Jir, to the south, and they assume that he meant the Niger River. And this is where they say that the first modern spelling of Niger was recorded by this Amazigi scholar, which they think was derived from the Tuareg phrase, and I apologize to all Tuareg people, Geren Geren, meaning rivers of rivers. But the one thing that everyone can agree on, and that all linguistics basically broadly agree on, that it does not come from the Latin word for black, or the French word for black. It predates all of that. I also want to say that the other thing that we can all agree on is that the Turek people are really cool. They're sometimes known as the blue people because of these blue cloths, these indigo cloths that they wear, and the men are the ones who cover their faces or veil themselves and the women do not. And it just reminded me, and I think it's it must be an influence of, I don't know if you watched uh, Dune, the stupid film. I have not seen Dune, no. Well, I mean, it's if you want to go to sleep ever, 
watch it, but it has beautiful visuals. I think it was really strongly influenced by this kind of, you know, this wrapping around of the cloth of the men in the desert and on the on the dunes and stuff. Yeah. Was... To me, movies like Dune is so that men can feel like they're heroes because they fail in real life. You know what I mean? They have these movies where they fight grand battles, where there's a clear distinction between good and bad, and there's one guy and he's always the hero, and everything is so important, and in these trailers you're always like, I love you, and you're like, all right. Well, it's toxic masculinity. Oh, God, and you're like, Jesus Christ. Christ, get over yourself. Timothy Chalamet looks like he's 12. He can't fight a war. I can, like, and he'll break in two. And I wish they were making these stupid movies where they want to portray themselves as the heroes when in real life all they're doing is ruining everything. And on that very long and frustrating note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. I would really recommend watching this documentary on uranium in Niger. It's really good journalism. There is less and less good journalism out there and people who, you know, go to places and ask questions and find the links between things and people. And uh, this one's really good. Also, the Deutsche Welle ones are really good. We'll link to all of them in the newsletters. And yeah, like really support and watch and take your information from good journalism. Thing two... We need to support economic migrants, so check out some local organizations in Germany, or I guess worldwide too. You can donate to Sea-Watch, which are doing amazing things. They're an NGO, basically saving people from drowning in the waters after governments have essentially abandoned them and given up. So they're doing amazing work. Support them. And number three, I think a lot of people still have a kind of stereotype in their mind about African countries, whenever there's a military coup like this, and it's like, oh, you know, African countries cannot uphold a democracy somehow, and, you know, they are poor. It's not true. They are resource rich. They are poor, and the democracies are failing basically because of everything the West or Europe has done, and how they have drawn borders from how they are exploiting the resources to how they are propping up or supporting certain governments and a lot of things for their own interests. So I would really check your assumptions and stereotypes when it comes to this. I think when you look at the newspapers at first glance, you don't see all of these reasons. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi misinformed.podcast at gmail.com We would love to hear from you.